This is not the media. This is hell. Easily the best commentary on last night's vice presidential debate was by the fly that landed on Mike Pence's head while he dismissed systemic racism. Great job, fly. I'm certain you were eating and pooping because that's what flies do. So thanks for taking a dump on the vice president's head while he feigned disgust at the mere suggestion that there is any racism anywhere in the United States. That's it, I've decided. I never knew I was going to make a decision on who I was going to vote for based on a vice presidential debate. But I've made my decision. I'm voting fly 2020. The pandemic could be devastating to Africa without any control over their economy or money. The entire continent is poised for a public health disaster. The World Economic Forum called coronavirus in Africa a ticking time bomb ready to go off. Luckily, the coronavirus has not been catastrophic to Africa yet, but it very well could, and it's possible that can happen in any moment. And when and if it does, without having control over their own economy or money, Africa's reaction will be undermined. At least that's what 600 academics and economists have said in an open letter titled Africa's Pandemic Response Calls for Reclaiming Economic and Monetary Sovereignty, which you can find at the Monetary Sovereignty in Africa website, M-E-S hyphen africa.org and we'll be speaking with two of the signatories Fadel Kaboub of Denison University in Ohio and Anango Sambasila who will be speaking with us from Dakar Senegal. Fadel is Associate Professor of Economics at Denison and President of the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity. You can find out more about Fadel at kaboob.com You can also follow Fadel at his Twitter account of course Fadel Kaboub F-A-D-H-E-L-K-A-B-O-U-B. Nongo is a Senegalese development economist. He has previously worked as a technical advisor at the presidency of the Republic of Senegal. You can follow Nongo on Twitter at N-S-Silla. That's N-S-S-Y-L-L-A. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show, Alex Jerry. Alex, please remind us, what's this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, what did you get Chuck for his birthday? What did you get Chuck for his birthday last weekend? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins our new gray and black This Is Hell face mask. You can check out the new gray and black This Is Hell face mask and all our merch right now by going to thisishell.com, clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at This Is Hell Radio. You can email us, chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth, as we do most weeks. During this week's Moment of Truth, Jeff looks at the spectrum from white to pale to transparent to invisible. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Again, what did you get Chuck for his birthday? What did you get Chuck? That's me for my birthday. Following our guest, your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. We got a couple of emails sent to Chuck at thisishell.com since yesterday's show. We want to share before we get to today's guests as well as Jeff in the moment of truth. Kurt emailed a guest suggestion. Good morning, Chuck and Alex. I think the journalist Robert Evans would be a tremendous guest for the show. When Kurt mentioned that, it sounded familiar, but I couldn't remember why. 
Uh, Kurt continues, most interesting to you would be his documentary podcast on the Rojavan project called the Women's War. He's also been reporting on the over 100 nights of protests in Portland. He's local to the area and has reported on the right-wing clashes with left-wing activists throughout the past couple of years. Warm regards, Kurt. Thanks for the reminder, Kurt. Uh, Robert was already on our list, I believe, as his writing at bellingcat.com, bellingcat.com from last July. Uh, What you need to know about the Battle of Portland was some of the best we had seen on Portland. However, I was unaware of any of his work on Rojava, so thanks for the heads up, Kurt. I really appreciate it. Uh, Yeah, if people are looking for writing on what's happening in Portland at any time, whether it's the wildfires or whether it's the protests, go check out Robert Evans' work at bellingcat.com. Dot com And even that article, What You Need to Know About the Battle of Portland, it still hasn't lost on any of its timeliness, even though it's a couple months old at this point. Andrew also sent a guest suggestion writing, I came across this current affairs article today via No Tech Magazine. The truth is paywalled, but the lies are free. Thought you would enjoy it if you haven't seen it already. That's a pretty funny uh, title there. Uh, but I really like to suggest you have a look at the latest from Giorgio's Callus et al. The case for degrowth. As one guest on your show recently pointed out, the lockdown after COVID-19 broke showed us that a lot of what we thought could never ever happen happened. Everything ground to a halt. Commerce, flights, commutes, it all ended overnight. Probably everything but war was halted entirely for a spell. I cannot remember his name, uh, but he wrote the book reflecting on life in the desert, and that's why I was thinking about uh, Georgios Callus. Uh, the person who Andrew's referring to is Ben Ehrenreich when he's talking about uh, somebody reflecting on life in the desert. We had been on the show back in July, and the book that we discussed with him is Desert Notebooks, A Roadmap for the End of Time. You can find that interview with Ben that inspired Andrew to suggest Georges Callas at all and the book The Case for Degrowth as being as something to be featured here on This Is Hell. Andrew continues, it may be a little perverse, but this writing on degrowth makes the pandemic a potential wedge issue through which we can start to rethink how our economic activity as a whole affects society and vice versa. That's basically what our uh, guests today are going to be talking about when it comes to Africa. Andrew says for a moment there, if only out of a fully justifiable panic, we put on hold our entropic march to self-annihilation, which, if you think about it, is really a perversion of our existence. Perhaps now it is time to analyze and put into action a more measured path forward. This book should offer some insights to how that can happen. Full disclosure, I'm currently enrolled in the third cohort of a master's program on political ecology, degrowth, and environmental justice at the Universitat Autonoma de Barcelona, of which the author Callas is one of the directors. That may make this seem like a shameless plug, but I've been diving into the subjects of social ecology, Murray Bookchin's Ecology of Freedom and Eco-Socialism and Degrowth for several years now, and have been waiting for something relevant and new to come along for your consideration. Great timing, eh? I've been missing the show a lot lately, and I wistfully watch the author's names and interview subjects twit by on Twitter, Wishing there were more hours in the day, but just knowing you are doing what you're doing makes the day that much easier. Okay, that was shameless, but not untrue. Peace, 
Andrew. We have been looking for guests to discuss the problems of constant economic growth more thoroughly and the possibility of degrowth. Uh, we even already had another author on our list about the topic, but this looks great. So thanks, Andrew, for the suggestion and the insight. Finally, we got an email from Sarah about a guest suggestion from last week. Sarah writes, Hi, Chuck. I heard the interview on the True Anon podcast with Timothy Faust, and that pushed me to read his book. I thought the book was great. I really look forward to you interviewing him. Best, Sarah. The book Sarah is referring to is Health Justice Now, Single Payer and What Comes Next, which Tyler also suggested uh, during our show last week. We read his email on the air. So that's two votes for Timothy Faust. And we haven't discussed healthcare for a while, so this sounds like a really good book topic, an interview topic, a really good book to discuss, a good guest for the show. And that's what we like to do. We like to have you send us your guest suggestions so this show is more and more listener-supported, not only in you subscribing on Patreon or going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, but supported by you by even coming up with the content, like listener feedback. You can send us your guest suggestions, comments, criticism, whatever to chuck at thisishell.com and we'll likely share your thoughts on the show. Coming up, Africa does not control its own economy or money, so their response to the pandemic will be very limited. We'll also have Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff looks at the spectrum from white to pale to transparent to invisible. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what did you get Chuck for his birthday? What did you get Chuck? That's me for his birthday. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray on black. This is hell face mask with our logo in gray, which you can see right now by going to our site. This is hell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at this is hell radio. You can email it to either of us, but you have to have your response in by the end of the show today. The planet's on fire. So yes, this is hell. So far, Africa has been fortunate to not have had the kind of coronavirus outbreak that the rest of the world is experiencing. But if and most likely when the pandemic lands on the continent's shores, the virus will find an Africa that does not have control over its own economy, does not have control over its own money, leaving it poorly equipped to face the challenge of a deadly disease. Here to help us understand why Africa is in such a position and why it needs more sovereignty. Fadil Kaboob and Nango Sambasila are two of the signatories to the open letter. Africa's pandemic response calls for reclaiming economic and monetary sovereignty, which was posted at the Monetary Sovereignty in Africa website, mes-africa.org. Fadil is Associate Professor of Economics at Denison and President of the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity. Welcome to the show, Fadil. Thank you for having us. And Nango is a Senegalese development economist. He has previously worked as a technical advisor at the presidency of the Republic of Senegal. And he's author of The Fair Trade Scandal, Marketing Poverty to Benefit the Rich. You can follow Nango on Twitter at N-S-S-Y-L-L-A. Welcome to This Is Hell, Nango. Thank you for your invitation. We have one of our guests, Fadil, is speaking to us from Ohio, and Nango is talking to us from Dakar, Senegal. Let's start with you, Nango. Uh, it says across continental, across Africa, this has been an issue when it comes to economic and monetary uh, sovereignty. But I was, you know, it's always difficult to 
just put a label on an entire continent. So I want to make sure to what extent this is the case. Uh, across continental Africa, do each and every one of Africa's nations, do they all suffer from the from a similar lack of economic and monetary sovereignty individually as well as collectively? Yeah, we, we could say that overall this is um, an issue for all African countries. Uh, even so, they have, um, let's say, different degrees of monetary sovereignty. Uh, let's say that, for example, that uh, South Africa, which is the third, uh, second biggest economy in Africa, has more monetary sovereignty than, for example, the Republic of Central Africa, which belongs to a monetary union. So there are different degrees. There is a spectrum. But the pandemic has shown that African countries uh, suffered from this lack of monetary and economic sovereignty. We saw that at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, namely through this uh, debt issue because you know that, and Fadel maybe will expand, will expand on that, uh, when you borrow uh, on, uh, you, you in foreign currency, that means that you're somehow you uh, compromise your, your monetary sovereignty. And many African countries uh, had been more or less heavily uh, indebted in foreign currencies. And so the ability to service this debt has been uh, somehow made more difficult with this pandemic. And we'll get to that debt in a moment. Fadil, uh, the letter you and Nango signed states, while Africa has so far been spared from the worst public effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, the subsequent economic shutdown has brought Africa's economic deficiencies and structural vulnerabilities into sharp focus. Fidel, the World Economic Forum website posted an article on April 6th, six months ago, stating Africa, with its long underfunded healthcare systems, is a time bomb just waiting to explode. The first few dozens of COVID-19 infections were detected in March, but the virus probably arrived weeks or months before. In Africa, deaths from COVID-19 might far exceed what the world is witnessing right now unless major steps are taken. But we have little hope right now for a substantial financial support when countries Countries like the U.S. cannot afford to properly supply its healthcare workers with the personal protection equipment that they need. Yet three weeks ago, Fadil, Global Opinions editor at the Washington Post, Karen Atia, uh, ran a column headlined, Africa has defied the COVID-19 nightmare scenarios. We shouldn't be surprised, which include the line, while so much about the virus and how it operates remains unclear, sub-Saharan Africa so far has dodged a deadly wave of coronavirus cases. Fadil, to you, what explains why what was considered Africa's time bomb has not gone off yet? Well, it, it's um, well. First, uh, thank you for having us on on the show and for highlighting this uh, this important subject. So it's it's really not clear yet, one hundred percent, if if that is actually true that uh, the African continent and, uh, and countries in the region have completely dodged the, the bullet. I'm I'm originally from Tunisia, so I have family living there and have frequent conversations. Um, there are so many deaths in, in our neighborhood, in our own family that are not reported as, as COVID deaths because governments essentially gave up. Um, they, they shut down with the first wave and, and they couldn't keep the economy completely closed. So they just reopened and kind of gave up on, on, uh, on, on fighting the pandemic. They're just hoping for the best. So who are the people who are dying? It's, it's the old, it's the, it's the more, more vulnerable members of society from, from a health perspective. 
Um, so the, the numbers, I'm very skeptical about the numbers. That's number one. Number two, um, many parts of uh, the African continent have, you know, uh, dodged the bullet, so to speak, in the sense that they're, they're not high contact regions with, with the world of tourism, with the world of uh, international trade. Um, so that, you know, quote unquote, worked in, in their favor, at least in terms of the, the first wave, the arrival of the first wave. So there's, there's lots of, um, you know, uh, data points that need to be clarified and we'll find out over time. But so far, I'm, I'm skeptical about the numbers. But to the most important point here is that the, the pandemic has and, and the subsequent shutdown has um, heightened the vulnerability, the economic vulnerability of most countries in the African continent from an economic perspective, from a socioeconomic perspective, in the sense that it highlighted um, the lack of resilience to external shocks. And, and that in and of itself informed the policy decisions of governments to reopen and sort of ignore the public health uh, crisis as we're now um, dealing with, with the second wave of, uh, of the pandemic. And so those are the, the, the issues that we wanted to highlight in this, uh, in this open letter. Um, and the idea here is that these structural vulnerabilities have existed for a long time. As a matter of fact, has, have existed since the post-independence era, the, the early post-independence era, and have been made worse by the Washington Consensus, IMF, and World Bank structural adjustment policies of the 90s and, and the 2000s. Um, and, and those translate ultimately into this massive external debt. And I emphasize external debt, meaning that this is debt denominated in foreign currencies, not in the national currency of a particular African country. Because domestically denominated debt in the national currency can, can be managed. But when it's debt owed in a foreign currency, there is no way you can service that debt unless you earn those dollars via exports, via foreign direct investment, via tourism, uh, via opening up your economy to the, the global um, extractive industries. And those are the structural weaknesses that we've tried, we try to highlight here. And we're essentially calling for uh, a different kind of economic development model that moves away from those extractive strategies and builds more resilience to external shocks because external shocks are not just pandemics. External shocks are you know, financial crises uh, and, and these pandemics with the effects of uh, climate change are likely to um, become more frequent and more intense. Uh, so this is really the, the main reason we wanted to call for uh, reforms and, and the, the way we think about economic development. I'll give you an example because most people don't realize that, that the so-called solutions that are implemented as, um, as things that will help the African continent or developing countries in general are actually traps. So for example, when you look at the reason for this external debt that most countries have and you dig into the details, you realize that that external debt is driven by massive imports of food and energy primarily for most countries. And when you recognize that if you encourage tourism as a solution for development, you end up bringing millions of people to the country um, in the tourism industry. 
which means you need to import even more food, which means you need to import even more energy to transport and heat and cool hotels and, and so on. So what seems to be a solution, tourism bringing millions of dollars to the country, turns out to be a trap in the long term because you end up subsidizing the tourism industry. And you're not the only country doing it because there's 120 other beautiful countries trying to bring tourism uh, to um, and create jobs domestically. So you end up racing to the bottom in that industry uh, and you end up subsidizing, you end up losing. So it turns out that tourism is it in itself an extractive industry in the same way that mining companies are extractive. Uh, so this is just one, one example. When you look at you know, foreign direct investment, you know, foreign companies relocating to Tunisia or Nigeria or Ghana or Senegal, um, it, it, they sell it as, as a great accomplishment. You set up this foreign company, you hire 500 locals to support them and their families and so on, which, which sounds great. But at the end of the day, you realize that the government, in order to attract those multinational corporations, has to give them free land has to lower the labor standards, environmental standards, has to subsidize the pension for the workers, has to give them uh, tax-free you know, activity for 10 years or more, has to subsidize electricity for them, which is fueled by imported fossil fuels, by the way. You, and you're not the only country doing that. There's another 150 countries around the world who are doing the same. So you're racing to the bottom. And at the end of the day, the foreign direct investment that's coming to that country, it's bringing all the technology, it's bringing all the raw materials, it's bringing everything from outside, using all the subsidies and lower standards that you're providing, and then taking the final output and selling it somewhere else in the global economy, and then taking the profits and repatriating those profits to shareholders, typically in the, in the global north. So that's another form of extraction from developing countries that goes unrecognized. So we're trying to highlight that the solutions that they tell us will help developing countries, foreign direct investment and tourism and export-oriented growth and all of that are actually traps. And we know this because the data tells us this is the case. So I'll, I'll close this statement with just one data point and then maybe my colleague Ndongo will, uh, will pick it up from here. If you divide the world into two groups, rich countries and poor countries, and net out all the financial transactions for exports and imports, including charity and foreign aid and everything, and you figure out where does the money flow at the end of the year, we're talking about $2 trillion moving from the global south to the global north annually. And this number has been on the rise for decades. And if we have this conversation in five years and 10 years, that number will probably be $5 trillion, maybe more. This is what we're talking about. It's an extractive global system. It's unsustainable politically, financially, ethically, environmentally. That's the model that we want to unpack, undo, and redesign. Nongo, the letter states that, however, decades of colonial and post-colonial socioeconomic dislocation exacerbated by market liberalization have forced African countries into a vicious cycle involving several structural deficiencies characterized by a lack of food sovereignty, a lack of energy sovereignty, 
low-value-added manufacturing and extractive industries. And as we were stating before, also a lack of sovereignty when it comes to the economy and uh, money. When I've suggested that some challenge facing a country is because of its history of being a victim of colonialization, uh, colonization and uh, empire, several times people here in the United States have responded by saying colonialism has been over for a very long time. Nango, you are in Senegal. How does colonialism still have an impact on Africa today? How does colonialism still operate in Africa? Yeah, thank you for this excellent question. Because as you said, many people think that um, uh, colonialism is over. Maybe what is over is, um, let's say, a special form of colonialism. That means that at one point there was, uh, let's say, foreign administrations, for example, British administrations, French administration, Portuguese administrations in their respective colonies deciding everything, the military, the political, the economic, etc. But since what has been called the independencies, that means uh, since six decades, most African countries have been, let's say, have access to formal political sovereignty, they are sovereign states. But uh, the purpose, the initial purpose of colonialism has been achieved. That means they have been, those countries have been placed in, um, have been shaped in a special way to uh, serve the global system, serve the global system as uh, uh, commodity producers mainly. And even uh, if they do not uh, export commodities, they are specialized in uh, low value added activities, the type described by, by Fadel Kabou earlier. So that has been a, a, a lasting legacy of uh, colonialism. That means uh, putting uh, most African countries and other countries from the global south in the periphery of the international division of labor. So in that context, uh, they are often very volatile. That means, for example, they can't uh, themselves uh, ensure their food uh, self-sufficiency, their food sovereignty. Uh, they can ensure themselves their energy sufficiency. So they need to borrow money, US dollars, euros, in order to have access to those critical goods uh, and also uh, even uh, pharmaceutical products. Uh, but the point is that uh, most African countries have the real resources. Uh, they have the land, they have the manpower, they have the knowledges, indigenous knowledges. And so uh, they are able, if they, they design well their monetary and banking system, financial system, uh, if they design them well, they are able to produce what is necessary for their own well-being. But the point about the global system and about the um, organizations like the IMF and the World Bank, their point is to say that we'll shape your economy uh, in a way that is beneficial for, let's say, foreign investment or foreign creditors, but not for the local populations. That is one element of continuity of colonialism. This is an economic aspect, and this is somehow implemented through the IMF and the World Bank, the World Trade Organization, uh, uh, through uh, what, what is called uh, yeah, uh, trade liberalization. That means putting down trade barriers, uh, trade barriers that could help countries develop their own, let's say, manufacturing base and and so on. Uh, the military aspect is also strong in, in Africa. You would see that, for example, French, uh, the French army regularly intervened for, its, uh, for the benefits of the uh, French government. Yeah, sometimes it's political, sometimes economical, but you, you see, see that also. And in the case of uh, France, I have, been, I have been working on a special type of relationships dating from the colonial period 
this is the, the CFA franc. It's a colonial currency born in 1945. And uh, now in 2020, uh, this colonial currency is still functioning as it was 75 years ago. That means under the tutelage of France, France is taking all the major decisions. And this uh, currency shared by 14 African countries uh, continues to be harmful to the economic prospects of um, African countries. So yes, uh, colonialism is alive, but under new forms, the old form where there was physical occupation of foreign administrations, this is an out outdated version of colonialism. But the new colonialism, if I could say so, is uh, let's say implemented through the agency of the World Bank, IMF, the military, and also special types of um, monetary and financial relationships between uh, countries uh, at the periphery and, uh, yeah, so, uh, countries in the global north. Uh, Nango, I just want to follow up with you on what you were just saying. So do you think that the market liberalization, do you think neoliberalism, that aspect of the kind of uh, control over the economic and monetary so sovereignty that Africa is experiencing right now. Do you think that that kind of market liberalization obfuscates? Do you think, do you think it, that's why we may not recognize uh, people who are outsiders, people here in the West, in the United States, uh, they may not recognize this as colonialism because it is through the market? Do, they, do you think that's why we may not recognize that colonialism still exists because it's just been replaced by a kind of privatized colonialism? Yeah, yeah, that, that's an interesting formulation, privatized colonialism. Yes, it's a form of colonialism, but yeah, without a visible face. And this colonialism is somehow directly implemented by African states themselves. So you could say that these are sovereign countries. They are somehow sovereign to implement their own policies, <laughs> but Actually, they are not so sovereign uh, because, for example, if they are strongly indebted to the IMF, the IMF say, yeah, you have to pay the debt. Or if you want me uh, to lend you again the, some money, you have to do this and that. And generally speaking, it's market liberalization. That means taking measures that are beneficial to uh, foreign corporations and uh, foreign um, creditors. And yeah, so this is a vicious form of, let's say, uh, power re relationships. Why you will see, for example, in some countries, yeah, you will see very corrupt gov governments. And sometimes they say, yeah, but the problem of Africa is that yeah, they have too much corrupt government. Yeah, it, it's true, we have corrupt government. But sometimes those corrupt governments, they are backed by, let's say, government from the global north, you see. You take someone like uh, Mobutu at the time. Mobutu was one of the worst uh, political leaders in Africa. But the US president used to say that Mobutu is the most loyal uh, ally of the U.S. in Africa, and uh, most, uh, uh, the, the, the man most friendly to, to liberty in Africa. That was what um, I think George Bush Senior said about, uh, about Mobutu. So you see, so this is something really uh, complicated. Sometimes we have leaders we do not want, but those leaders are, are in place because they are backed by um, by, by foreign powers. And those, let's say, non-democratic leaders, uh, they generally uh, implement the type of neoliberal policies recommended by the IMF and the World Bank. And somehow there's a connection with this issue about the, the oldest debt. That means a debt which has been contracted by uh, non-democratic regimes and which has been used uh, to fund projects which have, which have not been beneficial to the um, uh, overall population. And most of the 
that in Africa has this audience form and to challenge that you need, let's say, uh, yeah, uh, an organized civil society, which will go to the, yeah, to the, <clears throat> To, which will sell to the international community that we could not pay pay that debt. But you know, it sometimes it's complicated. When governments need uh, uh, urgent money for urgent purposes, uh, somehow they tend to stick to the conditionalities of the IMF and the, the creditors generally. Fadil Nango was just talking about the corruption that happens in Africa. You were talking about uh, your skepticism when it comes to the information related to how many how bad the pandemic outbreak is in Africa. So, Fadil, and a bigger question, I guess, is what is the impact of the lack of economic and monetary sovereignty for Africa? What is the, that? In, what is the impact on the attempt at democracy? Well, this is a very interesting question, and I'd like to reconnect it to a point that Dongo was was raising earlier. So, if you if you think of the transition from colonialism to independence, and there's an independence movement, there's you know the the charismatic independence leader. Now that leader is the president or prime minister. On day one, that government is going to continue using the same economic and political structure inherited from colonial times. And that colonial structure was not democratic. It was top-down, hierarchical, dictatorship, militaristic organization. So on day one, the government structure is already a dictatorship architecture. And most importantly, from an economic standpoint, the colonial authority was extracting resources, including agriculture and mining and so on. So on day one after independence, you're going to dig the same mines, ship them on the same colonial roads all the way to Europe to continue fueling industrialization in Europe. The one thing that changed on, on, on during that transition is the aspect related to food sovereignty because Europe didn't want to be dependent on its former colonies for its own food self-sufficiency and, and food sovereignty. So Europe introduced CAP, which is the Common Agricultural Policy, which essentially subsidized European farmers and blocked non-European farmers from exporting food to, to Europe. And that killed agriculture in the developing world that destabilized and essentially created a migration of unemployed farmers into the larger cities, you know, coincidence, that's when Europe started to outsource manufacturing, low value added manufacturing to the, the coastal cities in, in, uh, in, in Africa because the infrastructure was there. So that continued that dependence uh, relationship, but it also continued the corruption domestically because now the uh, African governments and, and leaders in, in general are now, uh, you know, subsidizing the development of manufacturing and the development of tourism and so on. And they're handing out these special import licenses and special export licenses to the nouveau riche uh, class in, uh, in, in their countries. So that, that legacy of colonialism continues to this day with corruption, with dictatorship, uh, with the extractive nature of, of the economy. So we're talking about democratizing the economy. We're talking about building resilience to serve the people of the African continent, as opposed to continuing to serve the interest of multinational corporations and, and the former colonial authorities. That's really what this movement is about. And we're hoping to empower people with an alternative narrative 
that says we will not have domestic resilience uh, to face these external shocks if we don't have food sovereignty, if we don't have energy sovereignty, if we don't start investing in the key areas that will actually help us move from producing low value added content kind of extractive uh, commodities to higher value added content. To get there, you need investment in education and vocational and technical training and research and development. All of these things we're told are too expensive and we can't afford them. Why? Because of this external debt, because we prioritize paying external debt. We prioritize doing the same thing over and over, which, as I explained earlier, has been moving the continent and the global south in general into a less favorable position over time. Um, so as, as they say, you know, if, if you're in a big hole and the first thing you do is you stop digging and you figure out a different way to get out. And what we've been told so far is dig faster. I mean, sometimes even literally digging in the sense of mining and extracting resources faster. And that just doesn't get you out of the hole. That gets you deeper into these, these problems. So we're trying to shift the narrative here about what is, what is possible. Uh, and, and so far, we've, we've seen a lot of enthusiasm. You know, case in point, you, know, you found this letter and, and uh, you're discussing it here, but there's a lot of enthusiasm in the African continent and the global south in general because people are dying for an alternative policy framework because we know the current system doesn't work. We, but we've been told that there is no alternative. Remember the, the famous line from Margaret Thatcher? That's been the mantra everywhere. There is no alternative. Just you know, put your head down and dig faster. That's it. Uh, and we're saying the only way to get out of this trap is to invest in sustainable, renewable, and sustainable agriculture to build food sovereignty, food resilience. Number two, to invest in renewable, sustainable energy because you have to fuel your economy in a clean way because we're dealing with a global climate crisis, obviously, but we're, we're dealing with with the lack of domestic energy production that makes a, a huge portion of the African continent dependent on energy imports. And this is, by the way, true even for the biggest energy exporters like you know uh, oil producers, because guess what? They export crude oil and then they import the higher value added version of it in gasoline and kerosene and petrochemicals because they don't have the refining capacity. So even those countries are dependent on energy imports because they don't have the refining capacity. And we're saying we need to move to you know, a more resilient uh, economic infrastructure in this day and age with you know, the planet is on fire, millions of, people, millions of people want to work and we have renewable green tech available that's getting cheaper by the day that's becoming more efficient by the day. It's a no-brainer that we need to invest in, uh, in, in, that, um, in that space to build more resilience and to start moving away from that external debt that's fueled by uh, food imports and, and energy imports. So those are kind of the no-brainer first steps. Um, but it's really also about democratizing the economy because when you're talking about investing in renewable energy, um, you have to recognize that you're going to be facing resistance. Uh, and we see this in the U.S., we see this everywhere. Resistance from the oil companies, from their super PACs, from their lobbyists, uh, from the media companies that spin their stories, 
so that's why we want to build a social movement that recognizes these obstacles and recognizes the opportunities because you're not going to be able to fight them by you know having an enlightened politician say oh we need to switch to renewable energy they're going to publish reports they're going to fight you left and right to demonstrate that you know their way is the only way same thing with with sustainable uh, domestic food resilience if if i'm the main importer of wheat or rice in the country and i have an exclusive monopoly power because i'm serving the country and there is now a social movement domestically to support sustainable agriculture to produce rice or corn or wheat domestically i'm going to do whatever i can in my power to protect my monopoly and i'm going to you know bribe politicians to not subsidize you i'm going to publish studies that show that this is not a good idea um, and, and that's the nice way to do it. I mean, in, in some cases, you know, people get killed for trying to change the system, for trying to fight, you know, domestic power. And this is just domestically. We're not talking about international interference, too, from multinational corporations and, and governments that have vested interest in keeping the system as is. So we're talking about a, a real fight, a real struggle. Uh, and you can't win this struggle if you don't have a clear vision about what is not working, what are the real obstacles, and what are the opportunities, so that you know, you know where you're going with, the, with your movement. And then you have to mobilize, you have to educate, inform, empower millions of people to push back against those obstacles. And, and that's what we're hoping to, to do with, these, uh, with, these, uh, with this work that we're doing, honestly. And, um, and I'm uh, delighted to have somebody like uh, Ndongo Sambasila join us in, in this effort and, and hundreds of other economists and uh, human rights activists and, um, uh, and climate activists who, who signed this statement uh, and are committed to formulating a coherent counter-narrative to the status quo of neoliberal uh, political economy. And that statement, again, is called Africa's Pandemic Response Calls for Reclaiming Economic and Monetary Sovereignty. You can find that at Monetary Sovereignty in Africa's website, mes-africa.org. Nango, I just wanted to uh, touch on a couple of things that uh, Fadil just said. He was talking about what the narrative is. And the narrative from the West's point of view, from the IMF and the World Bank's point of view, is that all they're trying to do with Africa is expand the free market, give them the free market, and give them democracy. But, as Fidel was just saying, there are a lot of obstacles to any kind of real change in Africa. How much is the IMF and the World Bank, how much are they obstacles to an actual free market in Africa and democracy in Africa? And do you think they hurt the the image of democracy and the free market by undermining both with their policies. Yeah, sure, sure. And if you um, talk about the IMF or the World Bank to African population, generally, they will not have a, a good <laughs> perception of, of the IMF and the World Bank because uh, most of us have an, um, a, a vivid memory of what happened during the 1980s because these were the, um, um, the, um, the years uh, where the so-called structural adjustment plans were implemented under the um, guidance of the World Bank and the IMF. What happened at that period was that most African countries uh, were heavily uh, 
uh, in-depth tip in foreign currencies because during the 1970s, they wanted to boost their, their own de development. So they went to, to banks in the global north, American banks, uh, saying that, yeah, we want to borrow money for our own development need, domestic needs. And what happened was that at the end of the 1970s, there was, uh, let's say, the prices of commodities declined. And that meant that most African countries uh, weren't able to service their debt without having access to more debt, you see. And the other thing was that um, uh, during, the, yeah, during this period, uh, there was um, a change in the global financial conditions because the American Central Bank uh, decided to, yeah, to raise a lot interest rates globally. And that means that the conditions for African countries to have access to more debt uh, were becoming much more tougher. And in those circumstances, they only have the IMF as a, let's say, as an institution who could uh, help them access to urgent loans. And uh, IMF told them, yeah, if you want to have uh, access to loans, uh, you'll have to fire people to reduce the size of the uh public employment you have to stop study subsidies in agriculture you have to stop subsidies in the industrial sector and you have to radically cut public spending in health and also in education and that has been the story of africa for two decades what happened was that agriculture declined industry declined and uh, educational and health sector declined. Sometimes in some countries, this trade was because there was some tensions in, in some countries. And uh, yeah, and there were no job created. And what is called the informal sector uh, started its boom uh, during this period. These have been the sectoral adjustment plans of the IMF and World Bank. That's why every time you say World Bank or IMF, people say, no, we can expect nothing good with the IMF and World Bank. And this is the economic side. And politically, they are also very powerful. There is a good example I used to, uh, used to, uh, <clears throat> uh, to tell people. It's about Ghana. Uh, because uh, uh, Ghana at one time uh, introduced, uh, let's say, a legislation to increase uh, tariffs uh, to protect the poultry sector. But once the parliament adopted this measure, raising tariffs for the, to protect the poultry sector. There was a local resident, IMF resident in Ghana. He spoke to the president and said, you could not endorse that, so you have to get rid of uh, that, uh, that, that law. And that's what happened. So this is the power uh, the IMF has on Africa. But it is not an um, unchanged power because more and more people are organized, organizing to say that, yeah, we could not uh, yeah, accept the austerity uh, recommendation, the let's say the, the the IMF model. So people are more and more uh, rebelling uh, against that. But as Fadel said earlier, we have to change the narrative because one of the uh, basic elements of the narrative is to say that Africa has no resources, so Africa cannot fund its own development. And uh, Fadel and I and other economists and activists who signed this document, we are against this narrative. <laughs> Because if you have the real resources, when we say real resources, we mean uh, if you have the land, if you have the uh, manpower, if you have the equipment, uh, if you have the knowledge, 
normally financing should not be an issue. And when we say financing, it's financing in local currency. Because when you know how um, the monetary system work, and when you know uh, the extent of the power of the uh, a country which is issuing its own currency, you know that when you have real resources, you can finance in local currency. Yeah what is uh, important for the well-being of, of the majority. And we are trying to push this narrative to say that we have to reorient our development model around the real resources we have. If, for example, a development model is, of Nigeria is to, uh, let's say, import many private jets for its billionaire, yeah, that means that Nigeria will be um, condemned to be an, 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 uh, an equalitarian society. But if, for example, the Nigeria want to uh, produce things based on their local resources and based on the mobilization of their labor force, that means another type of development model is possible. And we are trying to show that uh, it is possible for African countries and for the people of the Global South and everywhere in the world, it's possible to have, uh, let's say, development model, economic model, which are beneficial to, to humanity, in fact, uh, because, um, uh, yeah, there's also this um, this very wise, uh, let's say, remark once by, by Karl Marx, who said that humanity could only answer the issues it raises. That means whenever we have an issue, whenever we say, can we do that? That means we have the answer. And we are saying that we have to answer somehow to most of the challenges facing people of the global south but also people of the global north but we have to fight in order for our narrative to win and for uh how uh, for uh, how um, alliances we will build worldwide to push for another kind of uh, economic model which would be beneficial to humanity because we are at crossroads and uh, the fight somehow is uh, uh, the same for all humanity because we are facing the threat of uh, climate change and in face of climate change we have to be united well, one last question for each of you and unfortunately we're kind of up against the clock so i'm, I'm gonna have to ask you for a brief uh, answer to each of these questions our last question that we do for each of our guests is called the question from hell the question we hate to ask you might hate to answer our audience is going to hate your response we've been speaking with fadil kaboob and nango sambasilla who are two of the signatories to an open letter which you can find at mes dash africa.org that's the website of the monetary sovereignty in africa and it's all about uh, a demand for Af african economic and monetary sovereignty again you can find that article at or that letter at mes dash africa.org let's start with you fadil the letter states african states must develop a clear and independent long-term vision to build resilience to external shocks with financialization growing globally how can anyone anywhere build resilience to external shocks very good question well uh, this uh, this begs the question of you know what is what is the situation that we're dealing with right now and the best way i can describe it it's it's a hijacking situation it's a blackmailing situation by international financial institutions so let me let me explain and this will answer the the question from hell because this is the question from hell for most countries so Imagine you're a developing country and you're dependent on food imports, energy imports, medical equipment, everything. So as you import more, you have a trade deficit. 
and a trade deficit weakens your currency against the dollar, against the euro and the British pound. And if that goes unchecked, it means the next morning when you're importing food for your people or medical equipment, you're going to import it at a higher price, which means you're bringing inflation to your country, which means the next day you're going to have food riots, you're going to have people going without medical treatment and so on. That's why it's so important. So in order to artificially uh, you know, address that situation, in order to artificially strengthen your exchange rate, what do you do? You borrow dollars, you borrow euros, you build external debt. And now you're trapped, which means you have to follow the instructions of the IMF and the World Bank and the international financial institutions. Your economy has been hijacked and now you're required to pursue domestic economic policies that serve the needs of debt payments and so on. So you start prioritizing debt payments over your own people. You throw your people under the bus, essentially. And that's why we're saying a pandemic has, has been shining a bright light on that situation because now you realize you can't pay your external debt because your economy shut down. You can't even import you know, medical resources and food for your own people because you have to prioritize debt payments. So in order to generate revenues, you have to reopen your economy throw your people under the bus, essentially, when it comes to the pandemic, in order to continue making debt payments. And we're saying there is a way out. And that way out cannot happen unless you start shifting domestic resources, mobilizing your labor capacity, your creativity, ingenuity, and resources financed by domestic currency to start producing the food that you need domestically. And do it in a sustainable agricultural way, to start producing the energy that you need domestically, to start producing whatever you can to build resilience to these external shocks. And that's really the, the main message. And, and we're, we're hoping that more people will join us and engage in this conversation to unpack the real challenges and face them head on. And Nongo, yesterday in the New York Times, they reported that huge throngs of people traveled in recent days to Tuba, 120 miles east of Senegal's capital of Dakar, where you are right now, for uh, West Africa's largest religious gathering, the Magal, which commemorates the exile of a Muslim spiritual leader. Nanga, how concerned are you about the possibility of a super spreader event causing Dakar to possibly become a hotspot for the coronavirus outbreak? Yeah, this is a very good question because uh, uh, there have been a lot of discussions about whether this Magal should be organized or not because the Magal is the most important religious event in Senegal. And sometimes when you compare the attendance at the Magal and the uh, uh, electoral participation, you will see that more people uh, go to the Magal than uh, the people who, who, who vote. So it's a very uh, important religious event. But at the same time, religion in Senegal is so important to many people. So it has been a very sensitive case for the government. What they have done is to say that we have to, they have uh, people who went to the Magal have to take the maximum uh, measures of uh, health security. And the religious um, leaders participated to that effort saying to um, people coming to Tuba that they have to do their best so that to, to avoid uh, that this Magal became a super spreading event. But to be um, frank, we don't know what, what could happen. It's sure that we've, um, yeah, 
uh, such an attendance, most people will be uh, infected for sure. But many people think that this, um, this virus is not so little. And somehow the communication of the Senegalese government uh, tend to say that, yeah, every day we have 20 to 30 new infectious cases. And they say that, yeah, that means that the pandemic is uh, under check. But I'm not really uh, sure. Yeah, so we have to beware and we have to do our best individually to try to limit the, the spread of the, of the virus. But as Fadel said, earlier we don't know uh, for sure there is not the catastrophe which was announced at the beginning of the pandemic uh, but at the same time i think that the current numbers about africa are underestimated the number of infectious cases are higher than what is uh, published and also the, the number of deaths but it's not a catastrophe uh, announced so and i think that the major challenge for Africa will be the economic one, how to get out of, of this situation because uh, the pandemic uh, in Africa started by a collapse of uh, commodity prices. So it didn't start with a health crisis, but with, uh, uh, with an economic crisis. And now the IMF is saying to African countries, yeah, you have to pay the debt and you have to balance your books. That means that austerity, budget cuts, and that means probably a lost decade for Africa. And that's why we said in our call that, yeah, it's the time to, to, uh, to, to change things, to reorient our development model, and we'll have to fight against the IMF and the others who want uh, this decade to be lost by African countries. Nango, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show today. The best of luck to you. The best of health to you. Fadil, thank you so much for being on our show. This has been a really fantastic conversation, and everybody should go check out the letter that you and 600 other academics and economists signed at the Monetary Sovereignty in Africa website, mes-africa.org. Thank you both for being on our show this week. Thank you very much. Take care. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell. If you want to help us climb out of that debt, all you have to do is become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell. Our Patreon podcast happens tomorrow at 10 a.m. Chicago time. We will be featuring an interview with historian William Bloom from back in 2011 when he talked about uh, his opposition to NATO bombing of Libya. It was a really unpopular position at the time. Eh, Probably not as unpopular nowadays. I'll also have a fresh monologue, and this week I'll be going behind the scenes to explain what a typical work week is like for me and how I do my part in putting this show together. Thanks to Benoit B. for joining us as our newest Patreon patron. This week's question from L is, what did you get Chuck for his birthday? What did you get Chuck for his birthday? Alex will have the rest of your answers to the question from hell following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. The white, the pale, the transparent, and the invisible. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the telltale fluid. It's worth saying, no one needs to feel bad about feeling good that Dump got the virus he convinced 40% of the country was a hoax. 
He denied it existed. He denied it was serious. He came out with all kinds of back of comic book remedies for it, and he rarely, if ever, wore a mask. He disbanded the pandemic response protocols and the team put in place during the Obama presidency, like a spiteful preschooler, because everything vaguely attributable to Obama must be erased. As many have pointed out, it is objectively funny that this particular loudmouth got the virus. It's, to coin a phrase, hilarious. Just like it would be funny if he went around insisting he was impervious to fire and then spontaneously combusted. Just like if he kept insisting he was an expert juggler and then finally got a chance to demonstrate his juggling ability at Carnegie Hall and he chose to juggle a fishbowl with a fish in it, a chainsaw, and a stick of dynamite and right off the bat he sent the fishbowl crashing to the stage, then the chainsaw cut off one of his arms, then the dynamite blew his upper torso and head off like... That's how funny it is that Donald Dump has the virus right now. And if he's on a ventilator, so much the funnier. And if he's in a coma, even funnier. And if he dies, hilarious. Did you see the lame-ass speech he gave with no makeup on? He looked like Grandpa Munster with a nest of yellow fiberglass insulation on his head. He looked like one of those baked apple shrunken heads Vincent Price used to advertise on TV. Incidentally... Here in the text is a link to a website that harks back to those apple-shrunken heads and teaches you how to make them. Imagine being so insecure about how you stack up to a black man, and bear in mind, no one else is actually comparing you to this black man. You've taken it upon yourself to set up this success contest, this battle of shallow achievement, literally inside your own sick mind. Imagine setting up this contest... A contest which, even by your own shallow criteria, you are clearly losing. Imagine having constructed such a giant public display of your own inadequacy and your own fear of that inadequacy, like a giant aquarium on display in Times Square with an enormous obese albino suckerfish in it, and your entire reputation is that fat, ugly, pink-gilled, pink-eyed albino suckerfish sucking up scum from the aquarium gravel. I say fat. Because as much as I frown on body shaming, I think it's fine to body shame Trump. He's ugly, fat, looks like his diaper is full of scrambled eggs, and his mouth is puckered like an Instagram slut. Also, his wife's a Transylvanian, self-promoting sex traffic refugee who failed her ESL classes, aged out of the trade, and thought that selling herself to the most crooked real estate clown in New York was a retirement plan. I know she's Slovenian, but... I like the association with vampires Transylvania conjures. I dig grave for husband. That meme cracks me up. Their lives are like an underground comic about the New York City shitterati scene. According to about 37% of likely voters, Donald Trump is the paragon of whiteness. He's the best a white man can be. Some think he's the messiah. What idiots. The Messiah is going to be black and Jewish and chromosomally mostly female, so don't waste your time on white male losers, of which Dump is literally the epitome. It's almost like someone carved him out of a mound of dog turds and let it bleach in the sun until off-white. When I talk about how stupid and evil white people are, I'm talking about those in that 37%, and those throughout history who have pursued the insane imaginary destiny implied by that 37%'s thoughts, actions, and desires. I don't mean, for example, Chuck. 
who's got more mitigating strikes against his whiteness than a proud boy can shake a rainbow dildo at. And I sure as hell don't mean me being a Hebrew of swarthy essence, nor do I mean any other reasonably self-aware white person. So why even say white people? Or why not qualify it in order to soothe the easily bruised sensitivities of most of the decent caucasoidals in the nation? Because whiteness is the essence of the error of the Trump voter. It is the key to their arguments for oppression, even for their use of economic oppression against the non-white and even poor and working white people of the world. There are a lot of things wrong with whiteness as a critique of oppression, but there's a lot useful in it too, and it's not going away anytime soon, either as a description or a status marker. There's an admittedly white person who has come out against Trump recently, and he might be the palest accidentally near-progressive celebrity since David Bowie. He's almost beyond pale. About a month ago, Jim Gaffigan, a clean-working Catholic stand-up, let loose some profanity and typo-laden tweets railing at Trump. I find Gaffigan very funny, albeit not particularly challenging. He's the funniest ethnically and politically bland comic working today. After his Twitter rant, though, people online began attacking him. Not just him, but his wife. In response, his wife, Jeannie Gaffigan, wrote a piece called My Loved One's told me real Catholics vote for Trump. Here's my response. It was posted in America, a Jesuit review. I felt it wasn't getting the exposure it deserved. That is why I posted it on Facebook to at least give it the small boost of which I was capable. At least one self-described fierce papist was able to engage with the post intelligently and positively. Another, though, seemed to be passive-aggressively concealing his knee-jerk disagreement with the piece, taking the stance that he didn't know why anyone would post an article where the author flexes on another's faith, whatever that means, especially when RGB had so recently died and this dominionist Catholic bitch had just been nominated. I think he really wanted to come out and rage self-righteously against abortion, but knew that on a post under the watchful gaze of a couple thousand of my friends, that was not going to be a winning move. Jeannie Gaffigan condemned a single-issue Catholicism that privileges abortion above all the other injustices in our society. She learned to think in terms of justice in Jesuit school, justice as an expression of faith, and listed injustices to other vulnerable populations ignored by Trump-supporting Catholics. She had come to the conclusion, based on her faith, that outlawing abortion was a low priority compared to getting rid of a morally corrupt fascist in favor of a candidate who at least presented real opportunities to address some of the many injustices she'd listed. She gave a shout out to the current Pope, a Mr. Francis, who has denounced capitalism as immoral and destructive of human and other life. Gaffigan never mentions capitalism by name, but she does talk about homelessness and police violence, neither of which would be possible without capitalism, and both of which are required by it. We've had a religious left in the past in the U.S., and it seems to be coming back with a rush of anti-capitalist glory. Reverend William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign is walking in the footsteps of Dorothy Day, the famous Catholic anarchist of the last century. Fascists may have tried to crush the liberation theology movement in Latin America, but they failed to erase it from history. It, too, is having a resurgence. 
The religious left is far more ecumenical than our Bible-thumping enemies on the right. Muslims, Jews, Sikhs, Buddhists, and Hindus fill out their ranks. The fascism of the Trump regime has made it all the clearer to them that capitalism does not serve the people and cannot be forced to without a struggle. And the ideal victory of that struggle must be capitalism's demise. The next step in the struggle is to remove the fascist who would use paramilitaries to crush protest and discourage voting. Obama didn't run a particularly transparent presidency. He kept a lot of secrets, which made it difficult to keep tabs on his malfeasance, and that seems to be one of the few stylistic flourishes Dump has tried to retain. Sadly for him, he has again failed where Obama succeeded. He alienates his underlings so much and so quickly, they can't wait to leak all his dirty secrets to the press. Trump suffers from unintended transparency. Even now, as he strives to conceal the degree of his illness, he's incapable of it. He looks like he's been sculpted from papier-mâché and phlegm, and his blustering speeches are obviously edited around his respiratory gasps. His self-serving delusions stand stripped bare before the nation. We can almost watch his organs become inflamed. His narcissism is grotesque and obese. A survivor of a relationship with a narcissist recently told me that portrayals of narcissists on TV and in movies always fail to take it far enough. The one service Trump fulfills is to portray narcissism in its properly nightmarish and cartoonish extreme. But there's one movie I thought might give Trump a run for his money, and that is the recent remake of The Invisible Man, starring Elizabeth Moss as a woman who tries to get out of an abusive relationship with a tech guru by punching and stabbing the air. It's better than the Elizabeth Shue, Kevin Bacon version, Hollow Man. In that version, Kevin Bacon kept getting water, gravy, and mustard on him, so he was almost never invisible. In this one, it's, it's not that so much. Invisibility itself plays its part in the villain's undoing, rather than his mere sloppiness with fluids. I believe Trump will one day be invisible. He's gone from white to off-white to transparent, and soon no one will see him at all. That is the real treasure at the end of the monochromatic rainbow. This has been the moment of truth. Uh, good day. Thank you, Jeffy. We got to get going and we got to get to the rest of the answers to this week's question from hell. Stay beautiful, my friend. Thank you. Live from Landstone from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. Alex, do you have the rest of the answers to this week's question from hell? Oh, yeah. This week's question from hell. Where's my damn music? Hold on a second. Oh, there <laughs> we go. This week's question from hell is, what did you get Chuck for his birthday? What did you get Chuck for his birthday? Justin M says, a fully loaded, top-of-the-line digestive system. He's roughly goat-sized, I hope. <laughs> Sebastian M. says, a silly comment on a weekly question from hell. <laughs> Drowning in those, Sebastian. Uh, Wally R. says, a new Farrah Fawcett poster for his bedroom wall. <laughs> They're making gross. new ones. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Nikki says, Che Guevara's original banana clip for his Kalashnikov. Okay. Bradley R. says, I brought him a gray on black trucker cap, but I kept it for myself. <laughs> Kim G. says, a healthy gut flora bouquet. Uh, flowers would have been nice. Yeah. Uh, Mark C says, looks like he could use a castle and a pipe to store, protect, and indulge in his newly acquired large stash. Bride W says, this man needs much but nothing. The love of his life is an amazing woman. Chuck has been my bestie for 40 years. You're so old. Love you, dude. I have no idea who that is. <laughs> Aaron B says, 
a Stephen Miller with COVID-19. <laughs> John T says a 2021 pickup calendar featuring tastefully erotic pictures of marijuana. Marnef says front row tickets to a WWE wrestling show. Birthday joke. What do you get when you cross Ronald Reagan and the morning after pill? The Iran contraception affair. Oh my God. Damn it, Martin. Uh, Mason W says forgiveness of your sins, but an eternity in hell nonetheless. <laughs> Uh, via Twitter, email, DM, all that stuff. Flying Needle says a CBD enema. <laughs> Happy birthday, buddy. <laughs> Neil C says a vacation in Antarctica where you can enjoy water skiing and sunning on the beach. You won't even have to worry about all the penguin poop because, you know, no more penguins. What did you get Chuck for his birthday? Hypocrite Reader says an autographed picture of recently deceased Cincinnati Bengals coach Sam Weish made out to Chuck. <laughs> yeah, that thing's going up in value. And uh, Adam B. says, a Noam Chomsky OnlyFans <laughs> subscription. <Ooh. laughs> and uh, finally, Julius says, my best wishes. Happy birthday. Uh, so the two I liked the most were the Sam Weish reference, because that's a real deep cut. But I loved Fabio saying an IOU for his surplus value. Were there any that really stuck out to you, Alex? Uh, Fabio sounds good. I think that's really fantastic. Fabio has won in the past, but I don't give a damn because that's a great answer to this week's question from hell. My answer to this week's question from hell, what did you get Chuck for his birthday? Uh, I got Chuck a day off from working on This Is Hell. And I want to thank Alex for giving that to me. Uh, so, Fabio, you are the winner of this week's question from hell. All you have to do is send us your mailing address, and we'll be sending you the new gray on black. This is Hell face mask, which you can see right now at thisishell.com when you click on support. All right, we got to get out of here. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.